compress three sermons and four lectures into 45 minutes. So I don't know how well I'm going to do, <laughs> but I'll try. And um, if anything doesn't make sense, that's what the question and answer period is for. So, um, so what I'm going to talk in this first session today is about intersections between Lutheran theology, spirituality and practice, and charismatic or Pentecostal theology, spirituality, and practice. And as I've studied these topics, I reflected on the fact that Luther's Reformation, pietism within the Lutheran tradition, and the Pentecostal revival, which led to many charismatic offshoots, all of them actually had the same concern as their source, which is, what do we actually expect of the Christian life? So this isn't really a question about non-Christians. It's about people who are already in the faith, who are baptized, who are believers. What does their life look like? And you can see if they're asking that question, then there's also somehow a context of failure, right? Because you wouldn't be asking if everything was working just fine. But so, for example, in Luther's case, there's this, you have a man who has completely committed himself to God and the, the, to the highest degree that anybody could at that time. He joins a fairly strict order. He's in prayer all the time, but he's also a part of an order that's going out, that's preaching, trying to engage people in some way. He studies. He gets the most advanced degrees that he can. He tries to confess all of his sins. And it's in this specific context of striving to lead the most holy, most devoted life that he encounters the failure that led to his crisis. It's been easy for Protestants to say, oh, the problem was medieval Catholicism and its false works and false teachings. Well, I mean, yes, there are things that went wrong there that he came to recognize, but I think that's avoiding the real heart of the issue, which is that what happens when a true believing Christian tries to be holy and perfect and good and finds out that he can't? then what? Like, whose problem is it? Is it God's problem or is it my problem? And who's going to fix it, right? And so you see the same thing. Now, I think in pietism and in the Pentecostal revival, it started in Azusa Street. It maybe didn't start out with such an acute sense of personal failure, though I think you often find the leaders there at least have this initial feeling like there's something dry inside, um, but that can easily spin off to trying to fix other people rather than trying to fix myself, right? So I think the kind of questions that we're going to have the most fruitful discussion around when we put Lutheran pietist and charismatic Pentecostal theology into conversation are questions like, what is the source of the Christian life? What can we expect in a Christian life? How does the community and the individual, how do they interact with each other? What does God expect from us, both individually and communally? What does a living church filled with living believers actually look like, and how do we get there truly? What's the line between what God demands of us and what God simply gives to us? And therefore, by extension, what do we demand of other Christians and ourselves, and what do we simply grant to other Christians and to ourselves? So... These are the big questions that we're circling around this uh, experience of failure as the context for some kind of revival or renewal. And so we see in all three of these cases, the Lutheran Reformation, Pietism, and, and the Pentecostal renewals, a huge outburst of success, right? 
something really dramatic happens in the history of the church. But all three of these movements also discovered that if something powerful starts happening, there's always a pushback. And the pushback is not always only from the outside, though it's going to be that. It's also going to be on the inside. It's not like the enemies are only outside the gate. They're also inside the gates. That's what it means to be sinful human beings, even believing sinful human beings. Um, when we were on the plane yesterday, I noticed um, a single one krona coin on the ground, and I picked it up because I still pick up pennies. In America, we have pennies, which are worth about a tenth of a krona, and they're the same color. They're small like that. And it reminded me of a quote from an early Pentecostal I really like, which is, Nobody ever went to jail for counterfeiting pennies, right? If you're going to fake it, you're going to fake a $100 bill or something bigger. You're not going to fake a penny, right? Nobody does that. And I think that was really insightful to what happens when there are powerful spiritual movements. The very fact that they are powerful and that they're doing true things is going to attract like a magnet people who want power and not God people who are attracted to the drama, the spectacle, the excitements, but not what's at the core of it. And again, that's not something you can just shut outside, right? It's going to come inside, and its logic is going to seep in towards the heart of the real revival. And you see in all three of the movements I've mentioned, ways in which they themselves over time degenerated, became untrue to their foundation, need their own kind of revival. I think the same thing you find when you read St. Paul on spiritual gifts. Of course, he assumes there are spiritual gifts, but the real question is, how do you know which ones are true? Like, because anybody can claim to have a prophetic word. You know, you can fake speaking in tongues. You can say you have a word of knowledge and lose the ability to distinguish between your own inner convictions and what's actually a word of God. So on some level, the issue has never actually been whether these things are possible or if God gives them, but how do you know which ones are the real ones? Because they are going to attract fakes. And I think for Luther, too, you know, we often have this idea that Luther gave us back reading the Bible. Yes, truly. But Luther was a scholar. He was reading people who were reading the Bible. So even before it became like widespread for lay people, he was part of a community of people reading the Bible. And what he found then, and found even more so then when he translated the Bible, and anyone could read it, is the issue is not whether or not you receive scripture. I mean, honestly, anyone who doesn't receive scripture as God's word is just not going to stay a Christian very long. But when you're someone who's reading scripture, what's the right interpretation? Like, what's the faithful way to read it? What really gets at the heart of it? And Luther said, how do we know what the word of God is when there are so many words of God? Like, how do you know that Nahum in the Old Testament is not really the center of scripture? Why should it be the gospel of John instead? Like, what actually is your principle? If you just say scripture alone, you don't actually have any reasonable argument to prefer John over Nahum. Something else is actually operational. So again, the question is, how do you discern what is actually true? And so I think what, what I see in common with all of these movements is actually a search for truth. They've approached them in different ways. Their center of concern is different. But what they're trying to bring together, like in the Lutheran Reformation case, is the best of the hermeneutical and humanistic tools of study. So it is an education and university-centered movement. It's trying to really worship God with my mind to really think deep, serious thoughts about the gospel. 
And there are people who are really committed to the spiritual life, but think that you can just let the mind go. Like you shouldn't have to wrestle because I have the spirit. You know, I don't need to worry about my mind. All the people in the university are corrupt anyway. Well, there are corrupt people in the university. Why? You can't only have the mind. You also have to have the heart and the spirit devoted. And I think what you see in pietist and charismatic renewals is trying to ask, how can I actually discern spiritually what's going on and get it right and what's true? But as I'm sure you've all found in this, it's a hard job, right? There's a lot of good fakes out there. And they're not penny-sized. They're $100 bill-sized. And you really, you can't ever stop this process of discernment or assume that you've drawn a boundary that keeps all the fakes out and all the, the, the good guys on the inside. So as I've tried to um, think through these issues and kind of as an amateur historian kind of look at at the Lutheran Reformation, the Pietist renewals, and then charismatic revival around the world in that past hundred years, it seems to me that there is a basic pattern. And I'm really nervous about saying historical patterns because, again, it's just like, why Nahum versus the Gospel of John, right? Like, you can, you, there's enough fact out there, then you can pull out any pattern. So this is, I'm putting forward as a hypothesis requiring further testing, not as an absolute certainty. But my hypothesis is that Revivals succeed in the search for God's truth when they stay inside the church. And when they divorce from the church, when revival and church go their separate ways, both of them fail and badly, and it has a negative impact on society. So just let, let me give you some examples in my context, in American Lutheranism. Um, the charismatic renewals that went through all the mainline historic churches started in the late 1950s, early 1960s. And in the early 60s, it started in Lutheranism with a pastor in California. Um, you know, for Americans, it's kind of a joke, like, of course it was California, right? And um, it was a pastor from a kind of Norwegian, the more Norwegian heritage, pre-ELCA denomination we have. Um, and people were really nervous about it first on the outside, and the, the denomination, like, sent theologians and psychologists to investigate what was going on. <laughs> But they were convinced, like, okay, it's for real. And they, they issued a not very enthusiastic, but at least tolerant statement that, okay, this charismatic renewal stuff is okay as long as, you know, scripture is the final criterion and it isn't used as a power play, et cetera, et cetera. And for about, you know, 20, 30 years, maybe there was actually a fairly strong charismatic renewal in American Lutheranism. Um, the person I, I talked to who started this movement, uh, or who, through whom the Spirit started the movement, he estimated that maybe as much as 20 or, 10 or 20% of American Lutherans were charismatics in the 70s and 80s. I think that's a little high myself, but it, it could be possible. But it did go to all different places. But basically what happened is that the, the leadership probably reacting to some of the crazier trends in American religion, and come on, like we have a lot of crazy trends in American religion, were fairly negative towards the, the charismatic movements. They issued statements that were, you know, more negative than not. Some were quite active about trying to stamp it out or to separate out charismatic pastors from charismatic congregations. It never really found a foothold. It was not welcomed. And so what has happened since then is that basically all the charismatics have either stopped being charismatics or they've broken off and formed independent congregations or they've just vanished out of Lutheranism entirely and they found some other Protestant church more friendly to, towards their style. 
And at the same time, what happens in the, let's say now we have two larger, uh, the two main large Lutheran denominations, since that time also, the conservative one has gotten more conservative to the point of fundamentalism. The liberal one has gotten more liberal to the point of having nothing to say about the gospel at all. And we've just lost numbers like crazy. You can't believe how fast American Lutheranism has died in the past 30 years. We probably lost a third of our membership. And it's not like we were big to begin with. Like, you guys don't emigrate to America anymore. So <laughs> we don't have a new, you know, renewable resource here of uh, ethnic uh, immigrants, which is where we, you know, most of our church bodies came from. And of course, what we see is our society just continually getting more secular, maybe not as fast as yours, but it's happening there too. And you see that too, it's, it's happened in Norway and Sweden, you know, this has been a, a real live issue about whether or not your, especially your pietist renewals were accepted, you know, when the church was able to integrate them, which was done, in my judgment, most successfully in Finland, the church has been the strongest and the society so far has been least secular. And here and in Norway, where there was much bigger tension between church and revival, you know, the, the number of Christians has dropped off dramatically and the society is much more secular overall. So that seems to be something like a pattern. And you can see analogs to this elsewhere as, all, as well. So it seems to me, basically, church institutions, and when I say church, I mean more like kind of the, the long-term institutional structure, right? It doesn't like revival. Revival is insulting. It says you've gotten on track, off track, and you have to recenter. And there have to be more important things than the accumulation of history and bureaucratic roles and oversight and all this kind of stuff. And by definition, revival is nothing you can ever plan for. You can't schedule it in, right? By definition, a real revival is a God-given thing. So you never know when it's coming. And so it's hard to accept this disruption of business as usual. So there's a hard, it's really hard for institutions to accept that. On the other hand, the people who are caught up in their revival, it's super exciting, right? God is doing a new thing. And this is amazing. And we see how dead and traditionalistic this church is and how badly they need their revival. Revivalists, as a rule, don't want to slow down. They don't want to listen to the church. They don't want to learn from history. They don't want to take correction. They don't want to wait. They want to see it happen right now because finally it's happening and we can't dare lose the spirit this time. And if they're not patient and don't wait it out and they don't take the time to bring along the church's institution, they're going to give up and they're going to exit. And you know what's going to happen? They're going to turn into an institution and it's going to become exactly the same institution that they rebelled against in their first place. And you can see this now. So, for example, the Assemblies of God is the biggest Pentecostal denomination in the world. And it's certainly the biggest single, I mean, there's lots more Pentecostals in the U.S., but it's the biggest single denomination in the U.S., and um, uh, already, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, they did kind of a survey and found that only 40% of Assemblies of God Pentecostals said that they had ever spoken in tongues. Now, like 40% of American Lutherans speaking in tongues would be like phenomenal, you know, like you would say, wow, what happened? That's exciting. But for the original Pentecostals to have such a low percentage... And that was only once. Doesn't mean that they necessarily ever did it again. And you have to factor in the possibility that a lot of people said yes because they knew they were supposed to say yes and it was shameful to say no. So this, this denomination that staked its identity on being the church that received the revival of the Spirit and that said that speaking in tongues was the Bible evidence that you had been baptized in the Spirit 
it's just a denomination like any other. And then there's a lot of other ways in which it's kind of betrayed its original moral foundations. Now, I'm not saying this in a judgmental way because yeah, I'm not exactly proud of where my denomination is right now. But I'm just saying is that institution and revival need each other. And I think as a ecumenist of many years right now, God deliberately withholds gifts from us so that we need someone else. And so we can't do it ourselves. We have to reach out and be in a vulnerable, needy position to another place. So if you're on the side of revival, you're going to have to humble yourself and accept the institution does actually know something. It has learned from history, and it has managed to survive a long time. And if you're an institution, you're going to have to humble yourself and say, just because you've been around a long time, you know a lot, but you don't know everything. And you have to accept that somebody on the outside is seeing something that you need that you don't have, and you didn't see it yourself, and that's hard to take. So my basic rule of thumb then is, if church institution and revival can't reconcile, the revival gets crazy, and then it becomes institutional. But first it gets crazy. And what's really bad is when crazy gets institutionalized, oh, that is so bad. <laughs> the church gets authoritarian. And I think this is actually a pattern, too, that churches, institutions that don't accept revival actually get more and more authoritarian. And they usually don't realize they're doing it. Like, I bet the Church of Sweden thinks it's super open-minded and progressive and has no idea how controlling it actually is. I see my own denomination trending in the same direction. Uh, and the conservative Lutheran denomination, the U.S., same thing, very authoritarian, um, and thinks that all they're doing is protecting the gospel, right? And then finally, the third outcome is that society gets more and more secularized because the scandal of seeing, whether they know, know what they're seeing or not, the scandal of institution and revival not being able to work together discredits religion on both extremes, like the day-by-day -day religious stuff of the institution and the exciting um, and episodic stuff of the revival both get discredited in the process. Now, sometimes, though, the institution and the revival make friends. And when this happens, that seems to be the right thing to happen. The church accepts the need for reawakening, and the revival accepts the need for discipline. I already mentioned that in Finland, this seems to have worked better, if not perfectly, than in other parts of the Nordic countries. Um, you see it most powerfully in East Africa. So we have three huge Lutheran churches. There's one in Ethiopia, which, you know, in Sweden you're well familiar with because of all your missions there. But it's getting up towards 9 million members. That's pretty amazing. Um, there's the Lutheran church. Pardon? 10 million, actually. 10 million? Yeah, I can't even keep up with how quickly they update their numbers. I have to admit a little bit of skepticism. <laughs> uh, uh, but... Certainly, considering they had about 200,000 members in the 70s, yeah, even if they're at a, you know, only 7 million, that's pretty good in 40 years' time. And the, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Tanzania also in the 6, 7, 8 million range, and the Lutheran Church of Madagascar, which probably underreports its numbers, but probably somewhere around 4 million right now. And what's interesting about all of these is that they have all seen revival and they were able to accept it and learn from it and discipline it. So just uh, very brief, in Tanzania in the 1920s, there was a, a revival went, that went through all, all across East Africa. And it wasn't specific to Lutherans. It was all the denominations, including the Catholics, I believe, as called Uamsho. And, um, you know, it was about recommitting your life to Jesus and life of prayer, healing ministry, and so forth. Um, like in Nordic pietism, often like extra services on Sunday afternoon or during the week. And um, 
the, the, the Lutheran Church in Tanzania has probably had the hardest time of the East African churches accepting it, but it's done a pretty good job, I mean, certainly compared to the rest of the world. Um, it also has this strange phenomenon I just learned of having um, it, all of its, I guess, 22 synods are pretty independent, and many of them were started by different mission societies. So you have different um, cultural versions of Lutheranism that have shaped this, and so they're kind of this weird federation trying to work it out. They're also very influenced by the worst of prosperity gospel, and they're trying to push back. And sometimes it's hard for people not on the inside of the charismatic movement to see the difference between prosperity and Pentecostalism or charismatic removal. So that's kind of where they are. Nevertheless, overall, they have embraced these things that make sense to them culturally. In Ethiopia, um, similar story. In the 70s, a student group, some student groups um, met Pentecostals, um, really wanted to make that a part of their worship. The old folks didn't like it. Turns out old Ethiopians can be just as crabby as old Swedes about change in worship style. And um, their general secretary, who was later uh, martyred by the communist re regime, um, he insisted, don't leave the church, don't start a new one, but raise it from death. And then he led a study process um, with some Swedish missionaries also, Thomas was telling me about, um, and other leaders of the Ethiopian church, and they did a survey of all, how all the other denominations had dealt with charismatic renewal. They did a very detailed study of the scripture on the Holy Spirit, and their conclusion was, we've been praying for revival, and this is it. So we need to take it in, and we need to interpret it properly. Um, they give several very Lutheran criteria from the Book of Confessions about how to do it right and well, um, but they accepted it, and same thing. They heard what it had to offer. They gave back what they had to offer. They worked together, and now we just see this phenomenal growth. And I, someone told me they just renamed themselves so like a charismatic Lutheran church. Like It's part of their title now. They're so um, determined to you know, explicitly claim this identity. You can be both charismatic and Lutheran. Um, and finally, I'll just mention briefly Madagascar. I wonder how far I'm... Okay, i got a little more time. Um, I, I just visited Madagascar for the second time last month, and they have had four revivals uh, in their 130-year history, or maybe, maybe 150 years. But about 30 years after they were even founded, they had their first revival. So it's not like they were failing as a church. And yet the first revival came 30 years after... Um, the, of these four revivals, two were started by men and two were started by women. And that's amazing because they are a very traditional patriarchal society. Um, but these, but of all the, the founders of the four revivals had powerful visions. Um, at least two of them, I don't know about the other two, started having their visions be, while they were still pagan. Like they hadn't even been baptized yet or catechized, didn't know the Bible. Um, but they were being drawn by Jesus who they only later figured out was Jesus. <laughs> um, uh, the first one, uh, the first revival, actually, he was hired by the London Mission Society to be a catechist, and he only took the job because he thought the money would be good. He didn't actually believe, and then he quit because he realized being a witch doctor was actually more lucrative. Um, but then he got really sick, and on his deathbed, he prayed to Jesus, you know, <laughs> I'll give my life to you if you let me, have, let me keep it. And um, Jesus told him to get up and throw away his idols, so he did, and he was fully healed, and that was the beginning of his ministry. And he trained and commissioned, um, like, apostles, not a big A apostle, but, like, messengers to go out, basically, to the countryside, to villages, and teach the gospel. And then he started training people who lived in the villages 
to function basically like instead of a single pastor, like a community of pastors, lay pastors, to continue to teach and pray and so forth. Um, and the keystone of Malagasy um, charismatic um, spirituality is casting out evil spirits because they understand their pagan religion before Christianity to have been oriented towards inviting in evil spirits in order to gain power over other people. And, you know, I've heard, like, for instance, in Tanzania, people say, you know, our pagan piety was very creator-oriented. Um, it was not oriented towards evil spirits and power so much. I mean, there's some of that. But basically, they had a positive sense of God the creator. So for them, Christianity was telling them that the God who created them also redeemed them and made them holy. And that was a completion of what they knew about God. Whereas the Malagasy seem to feel that everything about their pre-Christian religion is fatally compromised and just has to be sent away. And their job is just cleaning Madagascar out of all of the, the evil spirits. And I mean, still, I mean, again, this, this church has been around 150 years, and yet their primary work is still going around and releasing people. It's also an extremely poor country. I mean, unbelievably poor. And um, I think just existence there makes you feel like evil is being dumped on you and depriving you of your human dignity and worth all the time. And so I think there's kind of a dual action there of casting out the lingering evil, but also just releasing people again and again from what a really hard life does to say, you have no value. You know, you are under bad powers stronger than yourself. And the gospel is constantly saying, no, you are forgiven. You are God's child. You are not part of that anymore. And um, final comment about Madagascar is that they are super obsessed with the Lutheran confessions. <laughs> I've hardly ever seen a church that's so into Lutheranism and its theology. Um, though, I mean, the Tanzania and uh, Ethiopia, too, they have translation projects for Lutheran. They definitely teach Lutheran's theology. But in Madagascar, it's, to me, almost comical when we were talking about their exorcism practice. They, they had a book of Concord, and they're like, well, it's all right here. We just have to read it. What we do, it's all in there. And I just thought, like, how many Americans would read the Book of Concord and come away with, oh, we better start casting out the demons, you know? <laughs> but to them, it's really self-evident. But, I mean, it's a, a very striking, for me, I was there in the context of Lutheran Pentecostal dialogue. For the Pentecostals, this was kind of mind-blowing because they tend to have, um, classical Pentecostals tend to have a bias against confessions. Like, for them, confessions are always a rival to the Bible, but it means they don't admit all the particular ways they interpret the Bible. You just can't have, like, pure Bible. You're going to interpret it. And they do interpret it, but they're not, like, honest about it. And so for them, what they saw is there can be a church that's extremely open. This is how we interpret the Bible in this Lutheran confessional way. And yet they are totally charismatic. They don't repel one another. They work together. And for those of us who are more traditionalist Lutherans, the Malagasy example is saying that, yes, you can be super confessional, but the charismatic stuff is not, does not destroy that. Actually, the two build each other up. So I think that's just a great example of how what people think doesn't work together actually can work together if the discernment process is right, if you're patient, if the church institution does the hard work. And it was hard work. It's not like they instantly accepted this. There were testing periods for all of the, the leaders of the four revivals. And, um, but they have now, believe it or not, a department of revivals in the structure of their church. And they're involved in the consecration of all of the shepherds, which are these lay exorcists that they train. And there must, I think there must be tens of thousands of these shepherds who are, are lay ministers doing this. 
So to me, that's kind of like one of the, the highlight examples of when church and church institution and revival accept each other, humble themselves, learn from each other, and join hands together. So let me see, where should I go from here now? So I guess my, my takeaway from all of this is two, well, there's a number of rules. Here's the first set of rules. Don't try to start a revival because <laughs> it's not your job. It's the Holy Spirit's job, and the Holy Spirit knows when to do it better than you do. On the flip side, don't kill a revival. That's not your job either. It's going to die anyway because it doesn't seem to be the Holy Spirit's long-term strategy. And in terms of long-term strategy, it's church as institution and what happens every Sunday. Like how many of you wake up at, on Saturday and think, oh boy, tomorrow I get to hear the scripture and take the Lord's Supper and pray. And that's the best thing ever. Like, I hope you do. But I think a lot of people feel like, well, that's good, but that's not like really what we're doing. Because really what we're about is like, you know, this conference coming up or planting a new church or getting the word out on the podcast. You know, I'm a podcaster. I get this. You know, like I'm watching the numbers. You like, how many new listeners have I got? Like, that's the real thing. That's not the real thing. Like, the real thing is actually Sunday after Sunday on the Lord's Day, on the day of the resurrection, people gathering together and hearing the word, receiving the sacraments, praying together. Like, that's the real thing. So, okay. All right, this is, you know, like seven lectures in one. So, all right, let me try. Um, all right, so then, so in reflecting on all of this, and uh, this came out of my first time in Madagascar, and I've kind of developed the idea further since then, is trying to think like criteria of true revival. Because like I said at the beginning, the issue is not whether it happens, it's how you know it's for real. Like, how do you know it's true? And I think one of the, the biggest problems we all have, and, and this is probably true in all of our areas of life, you know, we're visual creatures. We believe what we see. We have a really hard time penetrating to, like, the truth of something. We want to see the signs of success, of beauty, of growth, you know. And finding out what's inside, well, like, I don't know, if you look in your own heart, you probably have a hard time knowing what's really going on inside of there. So how do you know what's going on in other people's heart, much less the whole movement's heart? Like, it's really hard. Um, but I think, like, what it should mean to be a church together is working together on this project of discernments and trying to speak as truthfully as you can about what you're seeing. Sometimes as church people, like, we can be too polite. Like, we don't want to say, brother, that ain't from the Lord. That's from you. And you need to work out your mama issues because they are infecting everything you say, right? <laughs> and other times, like, we're just too aggressive. We're just like, you're out of your mind and you're crazy and I hate where you're going with this and you're of the devil, you know, and we just shut everything down, you know? So how do we actually work on creating this climate where we can speak truthfully in a way that the truth is not a weapon? And I think that's, oh, that's so hard because the truth is so complex. You can actually state a piece of the truth, but because you're not seeing the bigger truths around it, like that one piece of the truth somehow becomes untrue when it's pulled out of its context. But I think it really helps if at least we know it's hard to speak the truth and we need practice speaking the truth and we need to work together and we need to forgive each other like when we realize that the other person has not spoken truth or not full truth or is getting better but still slips into half-truths and lies sometimes. Anyway, so here... Here are eight criteria I came up with. You know, I'm just, please don't like make a Dr. Wilson's inventory of true revival and like start a quiz online and send it around and people be like, oh God, I only have seven. Or, you know, like, 
But this is just to help you think. Okay, this is not a checklist to say that you've arrived and now you're safe. All right. So anyway, and this is, I would say this is what I really learned from studying Luther's theology more than anything else, which is funny because it's not like he, he was planning a criteria for a revival, though he certainly thought about what counted as a true church. And uh, honestly, all of these criteria of true revival are also true of a true church, right? So one is that a true revival creates a love of holy scripture. Scripture can be used as a weapon to shame or control other people. It can also be seen as this backward ancient document that we have to overcome. But in a true revival, we will go back to scripture and see it as the source of abundant life and a wellspring of living water. I think a true revival will also create a love for the sacraments. We can treat baptism, for example, like a ritual happened once long ago or something that we have to repeat in order to prove that this time my conversion was for real. We can also treat communion like an empty obligation or a marketing strategy or a substitute for real preaching and catechesis. But I think in a true revival, the sacraments will be loved and welcomed as where we encounter the living Lord only to receive, not to act, but only to receive. I think true revival will create a love of prayer. Prayer can be a just dead, automatic recitation of meaningless words. It can also be a public demonstration of my impressive piety. Jesus really disliked that one. But in a true revival, prayer will be ongoing conversation with the Lord of life, but not only in strength, also in weakness, not in perfect faith, often in doubt, not only in hopefulness, but also hopelessness, not only in joy, but also in sadness. I think true revival will create a love of holiness. Now, this one's tricky because holiness can be used as an attempt to secure your salvation and show I'm good enough. God has to love me now. It can be very tempting to even do it in good works like, well, I work for a church. I work for the poor. I work for the mentally ill. Of course I'm doing enough and I'm good enough to be saved by my works. Of course I'm holy enough. It can, holiness can easily turn into a performance for other people or an opportunity to pr prove that you are superior to other people. But I think true holiness is actually not the success at all. It is the fight. It's saying I am in a battle against sin, death, the devil, and my own self. And I want to win, not so that I have this advantage over God or others, but because I see who Jesus is. And I want so badly for that to be my life too. Think true revival creates a love of forgiveness. You can use forgiveness as a cheap guarantee or a free pass and excuse a lot of bad behavior, especially in church leaders. You can also treat forgiveness as something for other people, but not for me because I don't need it because I'm so holy. But I think in my studies of people who I understand to have been holy in a way that I am not holy, what I see is they always say, what they say about themselves is, I've just learned more and more what a sinner I am and how badly I need forgiveness. That actually seems to be holiness, is knowing more and more how much you need to be forgiven and being more free in forgiving others. Which is funny, I think our automatic thing is, well, if you get more holy, you don't have to be forgiven as much because you're not making mistakes. But I think from what I see of truly holy people, it works the opposite way. They, they go deeper into the, 
into the spiral of their own hearts and see how down, how far down the sin goes, but also how far down the Jesus goes. I think true revival creates a love of service for others. Sometimes service is actually proselytism in disguise. Like, I don't actually want to serve the person. I want to make them a member of my church so our numbers go up, right? Or it can also be showing what kind of person I am. I'm a good person. I care about other people without ever actually noticing who it is you're serving. I think, though, in true revival, service will be caring for other people simply because they're created in God's image, and God will see to it that that person comes to him in God's own time. It's not my job. It's God's job, and God will do it. Uh, I think true revival creates a love of of the cross. So true revival does not make false promises about how much you can improve in this lifetime or that you will have a victorious life without pain. The cross doesn't perversely celebrate failure either and turn you into a self-righteous martyr like, oh, my life is horrible, but, you know, it makes me more like Jesus. That's still very self-centered. It's still very performance-oriented. The cross understands the price of faith in the fallen worlds, but it also is confident in the resurrection. And finally... True revival recognizes all times and all places as God's times and places. And I think that's a hard one because by definition, because revival is something special, you kind of feel like this is where God is really working. Actually, um, up at Johanna Lentz, I talked to a student who came out of a very extreme neo-charismatic congregation that was always chasing after the next big thing. Like they'd come out of one movement and then they jumped to the other and said, oh, this is where the spirit is now. And I guess the current one is based in Colombia and like the leaders there felt like they had to go to Colombia because that's where the Holy Spirit is right now. I heard another story about someone saying, um, a Pentecostal friend saying that uh, he had a colleague who said, oh, God's left the assemblies of God. Like he's moving on where I am now. That's where God is really acting. Like the insane egotism of that. Wow. But there is something about revival that has that as kind of like its internal weakness, like because something exciting has happened and this is really it. And this gives me a lot of cause for reflection because I'm a missionary now in Japan. By all generous estimates, Japan has gotten more money, time, personnel, and effort put into Christian mission with absolutely the least return. It has less than 1% of a Christian population and is the only country in Asia where the Christian population is declining. Even in places where there is persecution or like Bhutan, the closed Buddhist kingdom, like there's more Christian growth there than there is in Japan. So what are you going to say? Are you going to say that Japan is not God's place, that this is not God's time, that nothing has really been happening for the past 150 years? All the missionaries were awful. I mean, it's possible, but... I think it's pretty unlikely. Or I think of, you know, the stories of the grandmothers in the Soviet Union. There's nothing they could do. You can't have a revival in the Soviet Union because you'll be killed really fast, right? So there are all these Soviet grandmothers who snuck their grandchildren to the priest's house and had them baptized in the kitchen sink, right? Was that not God's time and place? You know, are you sad for them? Like, oh, they didn't live in the real time when it was really happening. But my time is exciting now because this is where the spirit is working. So this is a problem that, you know, both church and revival have to face all the time is, what is your criterion? 
what is success? What is evidence, right? We're so caught up. And I think now more than ever, this is, I mean, this has always been a weakness for human beings, but now in our Instagram culture, our Facebook feed culture, where everybody is public, where you are always on display, you're being watched by satellites and by surveillance cameras and by all your friends who act like you're your friends until suddenly they diss you online. And then you're like, what just happened here? Right? People you thought were on your side turn against you. You know, it's interesting in in the early uh, Azusa Street revival, there was this feeling like they were, well, they were trying. So there was this idea that there was a thing called the baptism in the spirit, but nobody knew actually for sure what it was. And then when William J. Seymour and his congregation started having their reception of spiritual gifts, they concluded, okay, this is baptism in the Holy Spirit. It's this missionary empowerment and the evidence is speaking in tongues and that, like, really, that evidence thing really hit on all of um, American but Western society's new obsession with science and trying to turn faith into science somehow. Like, not, not evil secular science that says terrible things like Darwinian evolution might be true, but, like, science where we can, like, prove that the Bible is true and prove that you're really a Christian, and we can prove that you've really been baptized in the Spirit because you speak in tongues. It's the Bible evidence that you're for real. But by the end of his life, Seymour had seen enough. He'd seen so many schisms open up out of the Azusa Street Revival. People who were his previous allies turn against him. And this initial amazing racial reconciliation already within his lifetime start turning into white churches versus black churches, which is, you know, where that fault line is in my culture. By the end of his life, he said, you know what? Divine love is the real Bible evidence. It's not these external signs. In the end, it's really loving your neighbor. That's how we know that this is a real, the revival is for real. Okay, I only have three minutes left. So let's see. So here's my last, my last rule of thumb, let's say. So I had, don't, don't start a revival, don't kill a revival, right? And then I kind of gave eight criteria Again, not a checklist, but a way to discern what's going on in a revival. And so here's my last thing. And this is really directed towards people who have any kind of leadership position. And I say this as myself, a leader and a teacher and a pastor who has more than once read the epistle to James, which says, not many of you should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, I know there's always a pushback against the idea that there's a double standard for clergy and public individuals, but you know what? It's with good reason, because those of us who are prominent, have authority or power or a public stance, we can hurt a whole lot more people and a whole lot faster. And if you've paid any attention to Pentecostalism in the past 125 years, for all of the fantastic things it's done, it has also damaged so many people when leaders got a kind of power, and the power itself became what they loved. And the damage is just unbelievable. So here's my rule of thumb. And again, this is too short, but it should be a a point of departure for discernment. It seems to me that a truly Holy Spirit-motivated heart is patient and accepts pain. And a a spirit motivated by something other than the Holy Spirit is going to seek prestige and power. So let me unpack that a little bit. Why patience? Well, it's like I said, all times and places are God's times and places, right? 
it isn't like if you don't do this right now, God's kingdom will not come. You know what? God's kingdom is gonna come anyway, whether or not you have anything to do with it. So when leaders get to the point where they're like, now, 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 can't wait, we must act, you have to accept my prophetic word, you have to listen to my interpretation, you have to listen to my word of knowledge right now, I think that's a sign that that's not really the Holy Spirit at work. You know, Paul says, the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. This is very different. In Greco-Roman society, when you were possessed by a god, you just lost control, right? You couldn't do anything about it. If you were writhing on the floor or dancing or speaking an ecstatic speech, like you were just a thing used by the god possessing you. But Paul said, a real Christian prophet, someone who is speaking by the Holy Spirit, actually, the Holy Spirit listens to you and works with you in your time. So I heard this great story once from a Pentecostal who talked about a worship service where they were in, I don't know, preaching or something, and someone up in the balcony starts speaking in tongues, and the preacher said, excuse me, brother, this is not the time for that. Can you save it till later? And the man stopped. And when the sermon was over and it was time for tongues, he said, please continue. And he continued, no problem. Why? Because the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. This Holy Spirit is patient. Holy Spirit's playing the long-term game here, right? He's got the eschaton on the horizon. It doesn't have to happen right this minute. It doesn't have to violate your humanity. You don't have to violate the humanity of other people demanding, right now, make your decision for Jesus, because it may never come around, sister. This is it. Heaven's at your doorstep, right? That's not how the Holy Spirit works. Holy Spirit's playing for the long-term game here. And so those of us who are hopefully working for the Holy Spirit and not for other spirits, we're patient. We entrust people to the Lord. If someone turns away, okay, let them go in peace. God will take care of them. It's God's job, not your job. You can be patient. And that means that you will accept pain. I was telling uh, Thomas and Magnus yesterday about my, one of my first experiences in a, in a Pentecostal church was in a, that of a one of my students at Princeton Seminary, he was a black Pentecostal, and he was being ordained with a bunch of other people. And uh, they were they're true black Americans in there, just enthusiasm. And I remember the most memorable part for me was the, the bishop who was ordaining them, saying to them, brothers, sisters, you have not felt pain until you've become a minister of the gospel. I was like, and I was in the midst of a very painful ministry. I was like, right on, brother. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm with you there. It's going to hurt. Okay, this is hard. This is the, the crucified Lord. It's not just the risen Lord. Of course he is risen, but the holes are still in his hands inside. They didn't heal up in heaven. They're still there. You have to be prepared to accept pain. And if you cannot accept pain, then it is not the Holy Spirit that is motivating you. And if you are hurting... You don't have to turn into a martyr, and you don't have to be self-righteous, and you don't have to dump on other people, okay? You can be honest about what you're going through. Probably people around you are going through something similar, but you can hurt. It's okay. Hurting is part of the Christian life. It's not an escape from pain. It's a transformation of pain because the crucified Lord is with you through the pain. Now, you know, people can pretend to be patient, and they can pretend to accept the pain, but if they're not really being motivated by the Holy Spirit, they can only pretend so long. It's going to crash and burn. And what's going to come out the other side is you are going to know in your gut. If you don't know it right away, start for one thing, start listening to your gut. Your gut tells you stuff about people that you're really polite Christians and you've taught yourself to not pay attention to. Okay, get over that. Be honest about people. Listen to what you're feeling about them. You can have it corrected. You might not always be right. But a lot of religious people like shut down their 
their insights into other people because it doesn't seem right. Okay, stop doing that. Again, the Holy Spirit can handle your sin, but you got to know what's really going on inside of you and what you're feeling and reacting to. Someone who's really motivated by power and prestige, they're going to show their hand in the end. Like, it's going to be exposed. Hopefully, they can be exposed before all the damage is done. But if you are a follower or if you're working with a leader, you owe it to them to help them see what's going on here, okay? You can't just go along with their sin, especially the more power they have. Like, we always talk about good leadership, but what's good followership, right? One way of being a good follower is not letting your leaders get too much power and too much prestige. Because you can actually corrupt someone who was starting on the right path and then got pulled away by the power and prestige that you helped to give to them. Don't do that. Don't tempt your leaders into hell. You know, be honest with them. And if somebody is actually motivated from power and prestige from the get-go, you might just have to let them walk away or you might have to walk away from them. But there is a chance that they were sent among you to hear a different word and have that sin broken. Okay, and this is why, again, learning to speak the truth is so hard but so important. You know, someone's soul is on the line here. Again, it's ultimately God's work, but God might need you to help do that work by saying, I don't think your heart's in the right place. I don't think this is what's going on. Now, check your own heart. Like, maybe you're saying that because you want them to go down so you can go up. You know, that's bad, too. But, I mean, these are the two basic directions. You can take the path of patience and pain, or you can take the path of power and prestige. Probably all of us are somewhere often wavering or we get pretty far down here and then suddenly an opportunity for power comes up and we get over here or maybe we've gone a long way down the path of power and thanks be to god the cross falls on us and crushes us and puts us over here on the patience and pain side nothing is beyond god's power but because part of our work in revival and in the institution of church is to discern these are the kind of things we have to be looking for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.